Hey, you cat and dog people. This is It's Training Cats and Dogs, your source of practical strategies to keep everyone in your multi-species household safe and sane. I'm your host, Naomi Rotenberg, and today we're talking to another pet professional about how they've used their expertise to manage the relationship between their own pets. Let's get started. I recently talked to Olivia Healy, a trainer in California who has two high-maintenance cats, about her recent experiences temporarily housing puppies and how they troubleshot some pretty interesting interactions between the animals. We also talked about what to really consider before adding another pet, especially one of another species, to your home. I hope you learn a lot from their perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Olivia Healy, and they have a really awesome perspective on the dog-cat relationship problem, or at least way to think about how we could make those relationships work in the home. So I'm going to introduce Olivia really quickly, and then we're going to just kind of jump right into it. Um, They've worked with dogs professionally since 2007, but they've been a professional dog trainer since 2013. And when talking about cats, they started training cats in 2016 with feral kittens in graduate school. And they are a certified trainer, fear-free certified trainer, and also CPDTKA, currently working towards the IAABC behavior consultant title. It's very exciting. And they co-own and operate Clickstart Dog Training Academy in Southern California, which just turned two years old in June, and we're recording this in August. Two years old is a really big milestone for a small business. And they currently live with their two four-year-old cats, Gigi and Jude. And both of those cats have lots of clicker training experience. So we're definitely going to get into the how to train cats side of the equation. Um, And welcome, Olivia. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Naomi. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to chat with you because you have two cats in your home and currently have a visiting dog with you for a relatively extended period of time. And you've thought about getting a dog, um, highly considered it but have decided that, you know, might not be the right time. So we're going to really jump into all those considerations and what factors we might want to think about when trying to develop a multi-species household. But first, let's just talk about your pet's history. Who are the cast of characters? And tell me what they're like as individuals. So right now we have uh, Gigi and Jude. They're both domestic short hairs. They're both about four years old. Gigi is slightly older. We don't know their exact ages. Uh, They're both foster fails. Um, We've had lots of other fosters that have gone on to permanent homes, but we had to keep, you know, those two. We got them both when they were probably around three to four weeks old. We were fostering through Friends of Upland Animal Shelter. Um, I highly recommend fostering if anyone's interested in kitten behavior because you get to see their critical socialization window, which is about two to seven weeks or three to seven weeks, you know, give or take. And they're really different animals. Um, they're a really, I think, good lesson for me and how genetics play into things. They're not litter mates. They're not genetically related. And even though they grew up in the same exact household, they could not be more different in terms of their temperaments. So Gigi, who's our little black cat with the bobtail that if you have seen me on Instagram, you'll see him running around. 
very, very pro-social, loves car rides, loves going new places, very excited about meeting new people and new animals. So he's kind of our adventure cat. So he goes everywhere with us that's safe for cats to go and he just loves it. Jude, on the other hand, was you know going through the same socialization process, but then around eight months old, we saw a really significant shift in his behavior. So we saw he suddenly started to become very fearful, very skittish of new things, um, very wary of going outside at all. It took him a long time to be able to go even into our backyard on leash for a while. It was about a year long process to get him back out there, um, which was definitely hard for us. We were hoping we would have these two adventure cat siblings that would go out together, but we just realized that's not who Jude is. He needs to be a cat who has a very specific structure at home. He's also a very, very active cat. So he needs to be constantly stimulated with puzzle feeders and climbing walls and catios and playtime and clicker training just to function in the home. Because if we don't do all those things, he will start to aggress at his brother Gigi, which has been a big struggle for the past couple of years. We've been working through that. Yeah. So it sounds like if he would want to do some enrichment activities outside, that might take some of the pressure off of you <laughs> um, to, Absolutely. you know, get his needs met inside. So let's talk enrichment for a little bit. Um, it sounds like you've obviously got a lot going on for both boys that works well for them as individuals. How mm -hmm. did you kind of come across the formulas for both of them that works well? I think just a lot of observation of the animals. So I, in the beginning, I feel like I was just typing in cat enrichment toy into Google and purchasing every single piece of plastic I could come into contact with. Some of them were hits, some of them were flops, and that's fine. Um, but then I read, oh gosh, um, the canine enrichment book. I can't remember the full title. It's more recent. We can figure that out later. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes um, once we figure it out. Mm -hmm. So it's really excellent and it talks about enrichment in kind of a more comprehensive way. So they talk about environmental enrichment and social enrichment and how kind of in the zoological world, they build enrichment plans by, you know, watching animals in the wild and observing what natural behavior looks like and trying to figure out how to replicate that in a, you know, captive environment. So with my guys, I used to, at our older place, we had a little not fenced in patio thing, um, but we would have them on long lines and I would just kind of sit there and watch them. And the two things they loved to do the most were eat and roll in grass and hunt bugs. <laughs> so there's you know, those are the things they like. So for enrichment here, we do a lot of um, different kinds of plants. We like to bring the outside in as much as we can. So we bring different pet safe plants in. We have herb gardens. We bring stuff in for that. have gotten a lot of different of like the hex bug type toys that kind of skitter around so they can hunt things and not torture live insects quite as much, <laughs> although that still does sneak in. Jude just two days ago brought in from the catio, the largest cockroach I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, sorry. Yeah, it was <laughs> heinous, but he was having a really good time, but I still had to intervene because I couldn't watch bug torture happen for too long because it was uh, getting cruel. That's what they're made for, those cats. They're really good at it, it turns out. <laughs> they're really good at catching and killing small creatures, much to my dismay. Oh, um, climbing is another big one. So we had a lot of shells with different precious tchotchkes and we learned very quickly during their adolescence that that was not a safe thing to have around two teenage cats. So we did a lot of museum putty for the tchotchkes to keep them glued to shelves and a lot of uh, climbing walls. So that's really smart. I hadn't even thought about museum putty. Mm -hmm. Smart idea. 
It's an example I give to my dog training clients a lot when we talk about how animals get you know, really clever about figuring out what behaviors get attention from the human. So Jude figured this out, that if you just sat on one of the counters with our kind of ceramic pieces and just made direct eye contact with us and put one paw on the figure and just kind of like cats, we just scooted it gradually closer to the edge. Um, we were unable to ignore that behavior. We had to go in and intervene quickly and he got that attention he was seeking. So the museum put everything down and he, for a few times, would try, you know, sitting next to it and staring at us and, and pawing at it, and it wasn't working, so he'd kind of stop and, and look, and then my partner would walk in, and he'd light up and do the same thing to them, and you watch that kind of process of, huh, well, this isn't working like I thought it was going to work anymore, so that environmental management piece was really helpful. Oh, management. I, I love a good management plan. That is <laughs> That is brilliant. So you mentioned that if the cats don't have adequate enrichment, and I'm assuming adequate not isn't just amount, but also variety of different activities mm -hmm. that aggression towards each other tends to happen. Um, yeah. Can you see that as a direct correlation, like per day, or does it take a little bit of time for the aggression to kind of come out um, if there's been just like a little bit of a lull? It's interesting. We've noticed a big change since we've moved. So for the first four years of our cat's lives, we all lived together in a pretty small studio. It's about like 400 square feet. The only room with a door that closed was the bathroom that we eventually attached a small catio to the window of to make it a little bit bigger so we could try to separate them throughout the day. But it was really difficult to, to manage all of that energy, especially with two young cats in that house. So if we went, you know, a single day without clicker training and eventual playtime for both cats, we would see aggression from Jude start to crop up. Um, and that would look like, you know, stalking Gigi, waiting for him to fall asleep and pouncing on him, biting the back of his neck. Um, a lot of that kind of frustration, aggression that we see mm -hmm. with cats sometimes. Um, in the new home, which is significantly larger, we've got three bedrooms and a, a catio that's actually a chicken run that we attach to the side of the house. So it's about 10 feet by six feet. We can go a whole week without intentionally doing a clicker session. And we see very little aggression now from Judy, which has been such a relief. Yeah, that takes a a lot of pressure off of you. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing what space and altering your space can do for cat behavior. I think it's really interesting because a lot of clients will see an increase in aggression, but it won't necessarily be such a clear correlation of today my dog didn't get their decompression walk and therefore they're more uh, angry towards the cat. It might be a few days in between. And so it's much harder to see that connection. But Jude was very clear. Uh, he's like, I need absolutely <laughs> mm -hmm. cool. So obviously, you have the two cats, you don't have a dog, um, or at least you <laughs> not permanently. Um, and mm -hmm. you'd mentioned to me kind of off camera that part of that was the space issue understandably struggling with two intense cats in a studio, adding another species to the mix would be crazy. Um, <laughs> so tell me kind of what other considerations, you're a dog trainer, you wanted a dog, right? So tell me about your thought process. Yeah, so it was a painful four years of not being able to get a puppy while I'm helping all of my clients with their amazing puppies, learning things and growing together. I feel grateful that I am a trainer and that I got kind of my dog fixed at least a little bit from work. Um, but I, I know I've taken on a lot of cases where there was previously a cat in the home, they introduced a puppy and the quality of life for the cat just 
tanks because the space is maybe not set up appropriately or there's not enough of it, not enough vertical space, not enough time devoted to each individual animal. It seems like cats tend to get the short end of the stick when we introduce a dog into the home. They're kind of, you know, considered like the, the starter pet. They're low maintenance. You don't have to do anything with them. And I would love for them to take Jude for a day and tell me how they feel about cats at the end of that 24-hour period with him. So in that smaller space, the studio, it was just... I feel like it would have been unethical for all of the animals involved and probably very unsafe for all of them to introduce a dog because there would be no way to really separate or put up barriers. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for this significant move is that I want a dog so badly and I know that there's no way that would have happened there and we need space with at least one room per animal so that even if we had to very strictly crate and rotate that that wouldn't be impossible to do. Yeah, that's smart. I mean, you... You made good proactive decisions. Um, not everyone can move in order to get a, a new animal, um, but obviously mm-hmm. this is your job. This is very important to you, and you know making it a priority to set things up so that the animals that you do get and have will be safe. I think everyone can talk about ways to implement that in terms of a management plan as much as possible in your own home, right? I mean, what kind of management techniques do you recommend to your clients that you're uh, coaching through things like this? Yeah. So I think specifically with cat dog homes, it gets tricky because cats are so athletic that you you can't really put up baby gates in the same way you could with dogs with, you know, inter-household aggression or conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most cats are going to sail right over a traditional baby gate. So I usually recommend having a way to completely shut an actual, you know, wooden door between the animals if you need to. Um, there's a way that I like to recommend introducing animals and usually it involves doing some like scent of each other first and then introducing sound and then visuals, but being able to really gradually introduce them to each other is helpful. So if they're if you're in an open floor plan and there are no doors, you're going to have to get a little bit creative to figure out how to do that. Um, I have sometimes recommended if someone has a doorway, but not a door, that they get two of the tension rod uh, baby gates with the doors in them and have one on the bottom right side up, one on the top upside down so the doors line up so that it's kind of an impromptu, you know, complete metal door. And they're a little bit cumbersome because uh, you can zip tie them together, but they're still a little bit finicky. But especially if we're hoping that this management plan is going to be a temporary solution to kind of that introduction, it's been helpful for some clients. That's a great idea too. Man, we're getting lots of good tips. So you have this new space, um, which is awesome. The cats seem to be happier and you are happier. And so this, uh, let's call it an opportunity, came along (laughs) for you to... (laughs) bring a puppy in temporarily. So how did you prepare for that? How Tell us a story of how he came to be at your house and what you've been doing for him. Yeah. So even before this current puppy was here, um, we had another trial run. It was a very brief, like 24-hour trial run um, with my good friend Arlo, their puppy Deco, came to stay with us just for an evening. Um, I'd been staying with them for about a week beforehand to kind of help them through all of the puppy stuff. So I already had a good relationship with this puppy. And even at 10 weeks old, she was a mat. She's a German Shepherd. And she was just massive for her age. So I wasn't expecting that she would be quite so large when I agreed to have her in the home. It turned out fine. There were definitely some kind of bumps in the road. Uh, the puppy on the drive down from Northern California got pretty badly car sick. So we wound up arriving much later in the day than we thought we were going to. So we didn't have the time to have one party pig puppy out for a little potty break while the other people 
got all the management set up. Um, it was just kind of crashing in through the front door at two in the morning, exhausted <laughs> with this poor sick puppy and going, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Gigi and Jude, here's a large animal in your home. I promise it's going to be okay. So there definitely were some unplanned uh, visuals of each other that resulted in lots of very dramatic growling and hissing from both cats, which was very discouraging to see right off the bat of, oh gosh, I've just brought this puppy into my house and now both cats are furious about this and they're doing their full Halloween cat arc <laughs> and making noises I've never come out of either of them. Um, and the puppy is confused and nervous of barking and it's just this, this back and forth. So we were able to kind of jerry-rig some management with, you know, a baby gate with a sheet slapped over it just for the night. And that worked out okay by the end of it. Um, lots of look at that from the puppy. Lots of just, we're going to focus on training this puppy just to look at these cats and not um, yell about it because she was so excited about it, which is what shepherds like to do. And then that kind of gave us an idea of, okay, so we, we know that when we have a puppy in the future, we have to have a better gate situation. We have to have um, more secure visual barriers so that we don't have any of those accidental sightings that lead to hurt feelings on both sides, at least until we have mm -hmm. some more counter conditioning in place for at least the cats, probably not the puppy, but definitely for the cats. The way Brutus came to us is we had a friend that just needed kind of an emergency placement for their puppy while they're figuring out a housing situation. So we agreed and we are not quite sure how puppy or how long puppy is going to be staying with us. His name is Brutus. He's a little corgi. He's about 13 weeks old now. He's adorable. And it's definitely easier starting with a puppy who was younger and smaller than the last puppy that was here. Um, and starting off with the correct management in place has been really helpful. So we have puppies set up in the kitchen with two very tall baby gates covered in sheets so that they can't see each other. Mm -hmm. Um, we put an extra barrier around the catio in the backyard so instead of just one fence between puppy and cat. There are two fences, so there's a little more space and they can't go nose to nose and we can't see any of that swatting we saw the first time mm -hmm. with the cats and the puppy that got too close too fast. Mm -hmm. And I think just having a little bit more time to get a schedule in place so that we knew, okay, so 7 a.m. we're taking puppy out into the backyard and we'll puppies out in the backyard with one person. We're going to let the cats explore the puppy's space without the puppy there. So they can start to introduce themselves to the arrangement and all the things that smell like puppy. Uh, and then when cats leave and puppy comes back in, puppy gets to experience all the cat scent that is now all over his thing. So that's a nice, gentle way to introduce them mm -hmm. compared to the cacophony of barking and hissing that happened round one. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've just been trying to really gradually introduce them. So we do lots of um, like puzzle feeders, kind of parallel play side by side. We have the, the blankets fill up on those baby gates, but we've been, you know, every day or as, as long as the animals are showing us that's okay to keep doing it, just raising those blankets a little bit so they can now see, you know, a quarter of an inch of each other on the bottom and then an inch and two inches. And we've gotten to the place where um, as long as we're there actively working with them, we can remove the visuals and still have a physical barrier. But for the most part, they can see each other without any any incident, which is nice. That's great. So how long are these sessions that you're actively working on them, seeing each other yeah. and, and, and training side by side? So we're keeping them pretty short and we're kind of using the puppy's attention span for training as the guide. The cats can go for much longer at this point because they're a little more, you know, mature and have more experience. So no more than five minutes at a time, generally like two to five minutes, just keep it really short. And so we, everybody gets a lot of chicken and they feel great about it and we go right back to covering the barriers before things go Quit while you're ahead yeah because i know i know myself as a trainer and i'm very prone to like just one more rep just i'll just do one more and that is always the rep that just crumbles the whole session exactly yeah we always want more as as humans we just want to we want to get there faster than we need to mm -hmm. 
So it seems like, I mean, we know that you know your cats really well and their tendencies. Did anything surprise you in either a good or a bad way when they first came in contact with either of these puppies with how they reacted? Yeah. So um, with the first puppy, Deco, I was surprised by Gigi's reaction to her. Um, he'd been around some dogs before. We'd taken him to friends' houses that have, you know, different ages and sizes of dog. And as long as the dog isn't really paying any mind to him, he just kind of cruises around and does his own thing. And I've never seen him react. I wonder if it was Jude reacting so strongly to the puppy that got Gigi upset and they kind of tag teamed it and made this very bizarre growling noise. That poor Deco, who was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> it took some time to get her feeling like, I promise they're not going to eat you, even though they look like they're going to. So that was surprising at first. And then with this second puppy, Brutus, little Corgi, Jude has surprised me in, in both directions <laughs> of emotion. Um, so I think I told you this uh, privately beforehand, but we had the puppy out in the backyard playing with the flirt pole on the grass. Um, Jude is in the catio. And I looked over and saw Jude who had been digging a hole without me realizing it, squeezing his body under the fence of the catio after digging a hole to come at the puppy, presumably to throw hands and start some kind of physical altercation. His tail was poopy. He was looking very upset. And despite the fact that I'm currently nursing a back injury, I absolutely sw like wept in like a hawk <laughs> and just snatched Jude up and ran him back inside and went, oh my God, my cat is going to eat this puppy and I don't know what to do about that. So he... He put Jude in his own room with a closed door and lots of puzzles to calm down because he was pretty agitated. And then it became a very hasty project for us to, you know, install some bricks and pavers along the edges of the catio. So that was not going to be an option anymore uh, because even if puppy's not there, we can't have them digging out of the catio. That's super unsafe and defeats the purpose of having a catio in the first place. So that set the scene with Jude and puppy for me to go, okay, well, this is heartbreaking. I might not ever be able to have a puppy in this home if this is the kind of violent reaction we're getting from this cat. He's telling me this is not okay and he's not comfortable and he's very, very stressed. But then after a week of these careful introductions, uh, Jude started, when I was in there with in the kitchen with the puppy, jumping over the fence to join the clicker training sessions, um, which was shocking. And the first few times I, I, I got stressed and I got very tense and quickly removed Jude because I thought, no, this is clearly some, some other kind of aggressive attempt on his part. But then I put a, a station out the next time. I just wanted to see what would happen. So I put a book on the floor. That's one of Jude's stations. And as soon as he heard me clicker training with the puppy, he jumped over the fence that I installed into the kitchen and sat on his station and started offering behavior um, and happily eating food. So he's, an enigma, but he was telling me with all of his observable behavior that I am at least okay enough with this puppy to repeatedly jump this barrier and go play clicker training games within, you know, five to 10 feet of this brand new puppy. Yeah. I mean, that speaks a lot to the skills that the cats already have really large reinforcement histories for separately, right? So one of the things that I always recommend to my clients is that you teach the important foundation skills to each animal separately so that when you end up using them together, there's a, at least a non-zero chance that the animals will be able to do them and have a desire to focus on something other than the other animal that's in some way being introduced to them. And so it sounds like Jude kind of just went into that, I love training, I know these foundation skills really, really well mode, and that provided some structure for him and maybe comforted him a little bit to have that kind of um, activity to do. Yeah, I know. I think so. 
And I think just the, the power of classical conditioning, just hearing the sound of the clicker and seeing the station, I think that alone made things so much easier. And I, I hadn't even thought about it in relation to Jude because my, you know, I'm a professional dog trainer. I don't take cat behavior consults professionally because I don't have any certifications in feline behavior, even though I'm very interested in it. But I've noticed when I'm working with a, a dog who's maybe fearful of people and maybe fearful of me the first time I come over, if the owner had been previously clicker training with the dog and I pull out a clicker, I see that immediate relief of, oh, thank God you speak clicker. Like I, I know clicker, we, we have some connection already and I'm feeling a little more reassured. I'm projecting and anthropomorphizing left and right, but that's kind of the general sense. It seems like this animal is relieved uh, that there is yeah. something familiar and secure. Yeah. Reminds me of, you know, any pattern game that you introduce into training, something simple that the animal can kind of latch onto. They understand the rules. They understand that you understand the rules mm-hmm. and things are predictable. And as uh, if there's anxiety in any scenario, which if there's struggles between cats and dogs and they aren't sure how to interact with each other, then having that structure seems like a pretty good way to start. So that's a really good segue into what skills did your cats already know that you have found to be invaluable in this integration experience? And then they might be different skills. What skills have you been teaching the puppy in order to make the transition easier? I think there is a lot of overlap between the two because the puppy is fairly new, so it doesn't have a whole lot of skills under its belt. So we started off with my two favorites, which are targeting and stationing. So the cats already knew a hand target and a target stick target, and that's been really helpful for directing them through space without having to physically touch them. Especially if we're dealing with a cat who is already feeling agitated and might be prone to redirecting onto your uh, very soft body parts with very sharp (laughs) body parts when they're feeling antsy, just being able to go, do touch. I I don't want to pick you up right now because if you got a raccoon tail going on and I don't want to, um, I don't want you to lash out at me. So that's been helpful. And then definitely those stations and having portable stations, you can play with the the height or the distance. So we can decide, you know, you, you seem to think that you're okay being two feet from the puppy, but I'm seeing that when you get that close, you have your airplane ears that kind of go sideways. And I see your tail starting to twitch. So you're getting a little bit agitated. Let's scoot that station so that you are now 10 feet from the puppy so that you're safely over there. I can reach both of you if I stick my arms out far enough for both parties. <laughs> And then for Jude specifically, I haven't done a whole lot of this with Gigi, and uh, Gigi was within a, a day jumping the fence and was confused as to why I kept removing him from the kitchen. He's going, like, I but that I want to be in the kitchen where all the snacks are. Um, <laughs> but Jude had worked a lot on um, look at that. So I've only ever done it with one cat, and it's Jude, but I do it a lot with dogs. So it's a lot of clicking and reinforcing for acknowledging the trigger and then clicking and reinforcing if they decide to dismiss the trigger on their own. So I've done that a lot with Jude with any anytime we had a batch of foster kittens in the home. We did a lot of kitten fostering also after Jude um, had his kind of behavior shift. It was several days of Jude being just horribly, horribly, horribly upset that there were kittens in the house. And um, if we even left a, a blanket out the kittens had been on, he would uh, sniff it and then just hiss into the air, just hiss at nothing because he was really upset that there were kittens anywhere nearby. But we found that look at that and stationing was really helpful for him. So we had him stationed really far away from the kittens behind a barrier and just clicked and treated every single time he looked anywhere in the direction of those kittens. And we found that usually within one or two weeks, he was then trying to groom the kittens and, you know, playing with his little paw under the fence gently. And that, I think, going back to what you're saying about pattern games was really helpful for teaching him 
this animal isn't a threat. Really good things happen in the presence of this new animal. Um, and nothing bad is going to happen to you while we're playing this game. We're going to make sure that we are keeping the kitten from rushing up and doing something boneheaded, like trying to swat you on the face or bite your tail <laughs> when we're playing the game. Yeah. Having that trust is really important. And I think you're a confident person who does this for a living. So there isn't a lot of opportunity for the animals to sense like that you don't really know what you're doing. Do you how much do you feel like kind of going in with a plan helps the animals acclimate? I couldn't even imagine not having the skill set and navigating this terrain where we're doing this three different species in one home that all have very different ideas of what normal behavior is. And we're trying to harmonize everything. I think it's an intense process. So I really feel for my clients that are struggling with it because it is really complicated because there are so many signals that get missed, even between us and our dogs and us and our cats, between cats and dogs. So now we have all these channels of communication that are all fuzzy. So I think the, the human end of the leash or whatever, having those skills <laughs> to be able to observe body language accurately and all the species that are in your home is really helpful and having that be really fluent and confident. Having good clicker mechanics is really helpful, which tends to get overlooked. But if you're fumbling for treats in the middle of a session while also trying to keep an eye on how everyone's feeling and doing, you're probably going to feel more stressed about that session. So having good mechanics first and then making sure that all of the animals, like you were saying, have that learning history and they only need to know those skills individually before we start mixing and matching and bringing everything together. So you've talked a lot about clicking and treating and how important it is to have clicker mechanics and all of that. And I think you're spot on. So I can hear all of um, my cat clients saying, but my cat isn't food motivated. So <laughs> do you have any suggestions for either ways to incorporate treats into a cat training session that might not be as obvious as for a f very food motivated dog um, or any alternative forms of reinforcement that seem to work uh, within the training session. Yeah, I think it was probably Sarah Strumming who said something along the lines of if your dog wasn't food motivated, they'd be dead. So same applies to cats. If your cat wasn't food motivated, they wouldn't be your cat anymore. They have at least mm -hmm. enough motivation to sustain themselves and keep themselves alive. So I think the first thing I like to recommend is not free feeding your cat unless there is uh, like a medical or veterinary reason to do so. So my guys, for example, they have constant access to some measured portion of dry food in uh, treat puzzles throughout the day. So that if they're ever feeling a little bit hungry, they want to graze a little bit, they need an activity, they can easily access that dry food and it's kind of lower value for them. They only get their wet food twice a day. And that is something that I believe that they would work for. So I am not an advocate for withholding meals to get animals more food motivated. I don't think that's really positive reinforcement that feels more like we're now withholding something and, you know, causing a deprivation, which isn't okay in my book, but we can use that higher value food as part of the training. So if we're, you know, scheduling meals and feeding them a portion of that meal for free and using a portion of it for just some basic clicker games, that might be helpful. And it might just be a matter of experimenting with different types of reinforcers in food. So a lot of the, the store-bought cat treats that I've seen, like the little, like, brown square temptations and things. Some cats like it, but most cats go, I could I could take it or leave it. But I would be willing to bet if we got out like a true treat tube with tuna paste in it or some fresh cooked chicken or salmon or tuna, that that's going to change their tune a little bit. So I find that that's really helpful. Um, and even with my cats, if I am eating any kind of pastry, Gigi is losing his absolute tiny mind. 
Um, so <laughs> I have done training for little tiny bits of croissant because it's his favorite thing in the world. Um, we don't do it too often because I know it's not great for him, but he loves it and he will work very hard for little bits of croissant. So you just have to listen to your learner. I've tried using things like play with Jude specifically because he loves to play uh, for training, but I find that playing with wand toys and, and things he bats around gets him into this state of arousal that is really not helpful for a lot of the stuff that I want him to do. It gets him very, very excited. Um, mm -hmm. So we choose not to train for that, even though I'm sure he would do a lot of things for it. But it might not be in the way that I want him to. Yeah, the reinforcement strategy informs the way the behavior comes out. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, most of the time when there's a cat and dog and they want to, you want them to get along, you don't want them to be practicing being a Looney Tune. Yeah. <laughs> so if your cat can calmly bat a little mousy around, that might be a good option. But if they lose their ever-loving mind, then uh, it might not be <laughs> exactly yeah. what you want to do. For example, reinforcing a calm settle on a place with a wand toy might be not the best pairing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think those are all really great options. Have you found that the way you deliver the treats matters? I've found that some cats don't come out of the box knowing how to eat a treat mm -hmm. um, in the way that we might expect them to. So what's your experience with uh, having to teach your cats how to train, how to get reinforcement? Yeah. Um, so I definitely, with both of my cats, had to teach them how to take food directly from my hand and put it in their mouth and swallow it and not, you know, throw it on the ground and then swipe it under the fridge and make it a game of now we have 20 minutes of cat hand reaching under the fridge to find the lost treat. If I am tossing food on the floor, I like to make sure that I'm tossing food on a like a carpet or rug so that it doesn't go skittering across the floor. Because the second we introduce a moving treat into it, we kind of activate this part of cat behavior. Um, it almost looks like a modal action pattern. I'm not sure exactly what it is where they get into that that chasing, hunting frame of mind. And it, it looks like less thoughtful behavior comes as a result, at least with my two cats. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. having different ways to deliver types of food. So the, the churu sticks tend to be a really nice introduction for here's how you take food out of my hand. Because a, a lot of cats I've noticed that you have a, even a treat in the palm of your hand and put that in front of them and look at you like, ew, <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. You put it on the ground. I don't want to take that out of your hand. Uh, but the, the churu is one step closer to it's next to my hand, but it's not touching it. And we can kind of get there. And I feel like for most people, it's not that important that the animal takes food directly from your hand. Uh, there have just been some specific training games that I played with dogs where it's important that the reinforcer comes from my hand and is delivered to the animal's mouth. So I wanted to replicate that with my cats if I could. Mm -hmm. So I would just kind of see what your cat is most comfortable with and, and go from there. Yeah. I think one of the main things that I'm taking away from this um, is just reinforcing my belief that when you're talking about dog cat stuff is that you have to train both sides of the equation, both sides of the relationship. And I think a lot of people who aren't as familiar with cat behavior or really kind of either actively or <laughs> subconsciously subscribe to the myth that you can't train cats mm -hmm. really focus on the dog, impulse control with the dog, don't chase the cats, all of that. And they're really missing the important enrichment and training opportunities that can come around when you're really actively working with the cats on these kinds of skills as well. Do you feel like if your cats didn't have the skills that they already have, you would be where you are with this puppy? Uh, absolutely not. I think it would be a uh 
an unmitigated disaster if we didn't have some clicker training on board for these two cats. Um, and I realize now we got so on on boat cat behavior that I didn't even talk about what we trained the puppy to do. We got, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, having all that stuff established for the cats well ahead of time was crucial. And I know not everybody has that luxury. Um, I think if my cats didn't have those skills, we'd be relying a lot more heavily on management and would be going a lot more slowly. I don't know if I'd be doing things that much differently. Um, other than maybe mm -hmm. doing some dedicated clicker sessions with the cats individually to build up those skills while we work on the slow introduction. Um, mm -hmm. For the puppy, we're doing just so much relax on the mat, just relax on the mat all the time, every day. So not necessarily a, you know, go to place and stay obedience cue, but uh, I want you just to glue yourself to this magic mat and just hang out there and get all the food while things are going by, um, along with some targeting, we haven't even worked on any, you know, quote unquote, impulse control because he's a baby and I don't think it's fair to ask him to do that. But we can mm -hmm. just reward the heck out of any calm behavior anytime cats are present. So I try to set him up for success by exercising him outside with a flirt pole first or, you know, playing fetch or just getting those wiggles out. And then when he's a little bit sleepy, kind of half battery puppy and bringing him in to do that session <laughs> because if he's like barking and doing his puppy zoomies when I'm trying to teach the cats, hey, you like this guy. They're going to go, no, you're wrong. <laughs> You've made a bad call. Yeah, he's a total nut job. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> so I think setting, that goes along with planning out your sessions, right? So mm -hmm. you say, all right, um, training on the fly might work in some houses, but a lot of times really having management up most of the time and then saying, all right, we're going to do this, <laughs> making sure that animals are prepared, you're prepared, and then having a short introduction is going to be the best way to go. And I think your explanations of working both with the cats and the dog is so, so important. I want to touch a little bit about what you said if you didn't have the training on board that you would be relying much more on management. Right now, you mentioned that you have some gates and some bar uh, visual barriers, but the cats can jump over the gate. Mm -hmm. Nothing horrible has happened because it's baby corgi. Yep. Um, <laughs> so kind of, you know, let's let's talk about the alternate universe that might be in your house if no one had skills. How do you think you might have added or adjusted your management strategy to keep everybody safe and uh, less stressed? Yeah. So I think depending on how, you know, well or poorly things were going with, with the situation, I would have either decided that when I'm not actively working on it, or at least there to, to observe and keep things safe, I would have all of the animals in completely separate rooms. So we have a guest room set up that has a bunch of cat climbing shelves installed in the big window. So that would be one room for cat. Um, another bedroom has the catio attached to the, uh, the other room, and then puppy in the kitchen. So that there is no way for any of those animals to interact without us being there to make sure that it's going okay. Um, the other option would be what I was describing earlier with the, the jerry-rigged uh, double gate. So we would have uh, mm -hmm. put two gates per doorway so that the cats wouldn't be able to get all the way up over it. And I think the decision there would be either, do I feel safe enough just having one gate with you know fencing between them? Or am I still worried that we're going to get noses and paws shoving between those gates? And if I was really worried, you know, even with the baby gate, I feel like they're going to get nose to nose and it's not going to be okay. Then we would go to 
all right, well, every animal is in their own room with a closed wooden door so that nothing can go sideways when I'm not there to manage it. Yeah, I like to think of it as the double barrier, double mm -hmm. layers of management being super important, especially because management always fails at yeah. some point. So even if you have a door, like someone's going to scoot out when you're coming in and out or some at some point, yeah. right? So at least layering those up can sometimes give you some more peace of mind. Mm -hmm. But also having that little, I like to call it like a little DMZ to prevent the pauses and the the accidental jumping over and getting to those nose to nose. Mm -hmm. um, super important because that can be some of the most stressful stuff, right? Like that, even under a door, like that little paw that comes underneath yeah. is so stressful for some animals because they're like, I have this safe space, but it's being infiltrated by this paw, mm -hmm. this disembodied paw. Um, <laughs> so really, it, it really does depend on the level of stress I think also that the animals are seeing. So even if they're not having direct interactions, do you have other management tips that you might have suggested to other people about like animals who are super stressed about just hearing the other animal or oh, yeah. smelling the other animal? We've talked about, you know, visual barriers and how important those are. And I definitely think those are like the most prevalent mm -hmm. <laughs> um, triggers for each animals to see the other one and maybe be able to touch them. But like, what if hearing a meow makes the dog totally go nuts? Oh, yeah. Um, we I wasn't sure if sound was going to be an issue with our grouping. So I definitely started off heavy with uh, I kept the vent hood in the kitchen on just to make sure that there's some semblance of white noise so that if puppy is you know, scrambling around on the tile or playing with the squeaky toy that it wouldn't disrupt the piece. Mm -hmm. We have several white noise machines, which are a godsend, and just having those strategically placed can be really valuable. Um, mm -hmm. Luckily, it's summer here in Southern California, so we've had all of the AC units on anyway, which is helpful. Um, and then we have different televisions we can set to like play, you know, music or white noise or rain sounds or just something to help muffle that noise so that even if it is a little bit audible, it's not just this sudden noise in a sea of silence that would have otherwise been really, you know, disrupting and maybe upsetting for an animal. Yeah. Uh, for, for scent, I've neglected to mention this, we have um, feel-away diffusers in every single room in this house, um, which I, I found has been really helpful with the inter-cat stuff. I saw a study pretty recently that was talking about the benefits of using both, using um, Adaptil and Fellaway in the same home, and it's been shown to uh, reduce conflict between cat and dogs, which is interesting. So I think even if that's not going to solve the issue, it's, it's worth just giving it a shot. Yeah, it can't mm -hmm. hurt. So... What advice do you have, because you've been thinking about this a lot, for people who are thinking about adding another species to their home? What should they be planning, thinking about in terms of what to expect and what to do, what animals to look mm -hmm. for? I think um, being brutally honest with yourself about the animals you already have in your home is important. And sometimes it's hard to be objective about that. Um, I know even for me, I'm, I'm a professional trainer, but when I'm looking at my own animals, it's really hard to put on your, your trainer goggles and be totally objective because they're your babies. So it took me talking to colleagues of mine at the old house to really come to the conclusion that, okay, it is not okay to have a dog in this home as much as I can try to invent. But what if we install a door and we... <laughs> you know, do all this crazy construction in this small space to make it work. So I think, first of all, you know, trying to be objective. And if you can't, seeking out the advice of a certified trainer to help you make that call to decide, you know, is it okay to introduce another animal with your existing pets? And if so, what species are we looking at? 
I also have uh, aquariums in the house and the cats are extremely interested in all of the fish and shrimp and critters. So I have made a point to, you know, put them up on stands that the cats can't get to because I don't think it's okay to watch them uh, smack the sides of the tank and watch the fish panic back and forth. So even for things like that, you want to make sure that you're being a little bit thoughtful for every animal who's involved. And then I think if you, you know, do decide I think it's okay to bring, let's say, a dog into the home with my two cats. That's kind of my situation now. Um, we have to have some contingency plans in place. So I, I know that me getting a puppy eventually might mean that we have a lot of separation in the beginning. I know it's going to be a lot of work for me to be raising a puppy and also making sure that my cats have their needs met. So it's going to have to be a team effort for everyone living in the house to be on that same page. And just recognizing that it might not be the like adorable hallmark cats and dogs snuggling together in front of the fire image in your head that you want. I want that very badly, but I'm not going <laughs> to kid myself and think that that's going to be absolutely the outcome when we have a dog in this home for, you know, even longer. So you keep mentioning puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say, should I get an older dog? Should I bring, should I do a puppy? Do you have, I, I feel like I am anticipating that you want to do a puppy because you're a dog trainer who wants to raise mm-hmm. a puppy correctly from day one, but for, correct me if I'm wrong, but what do you feel like there's things that you need to think about age and energy level and, you know, puppies being puppies, (laughs) um, pros and cons for, getting that baby and bringing them yeah. in versus an yeah, older no, one. You're right on the money. I, I'm interested in a puppy because I'm a trainer and I, I love puppy development. I think it's fascinating. So I want to have that in my own home um, and not just in client homes for, for once. <laughs> and I think it's an unsatisfying answer, but it's really just, it depends with, should I bring in a puppy or an adult dog? It just depends on the animals you have in your home and their age. If we had, you know, two geriatric cats, I might not recommend bringing in like an adult sight hound into the home. That feels like a recipe for <laughs> not a good time for those two cats that can't get away from the dog who's been bred to hunt and catch small running things. So you do want to think about age and breed. And even if you do, I, I had one case uh, a couple of years ago where it was a client and they had two older cats in the home and they adopted a brand new dog. He's this uh, like bully mix, really big, chunky, delightful, friendly guy. Uh, but he had really intense, alarming behavior towards the cats. So he was usually really like wiggly and happy to see people and, and even other dogs. But when he saw the cats, he just froze. He got really still and his eyes went hard and his brow furrowed and his mouth got really tight and he would just stare and stare and stare and then book it after the cat's in charge in a way that made me believe he was intending to to do some damage. So mm-hmm. my first recommendation was this is probably not the right home for this dog if we want to keep our cat safe. That's just how I think that's going to go. Um, the family was really determined to keep the dog. So we had to come up with the strictest triple barrier management plan for the duration of those cats' lives. Um, luckily, they were you know, both a little bit older and they weren't interested in going outside and being super active. So it wasn't too hard to contain them. So I think even in those really challenging scenarios, it's, it's possible to bring other animals in, but it requires a, a pretty intense level of dedication to make sure that that goes smoothly because it could end uh, disastrously. Yeah. I mean, especially when there's a huge safety concern, mm-hmm. when there's a large size difference between the animals, when you have unknown variables of you don't know the history of the dog, for example. Mm-hmm. You don't know whether they've ever killed another small animal or or 
severely hurt them. Um, so there's definitely, yeah, there's pros and cons to everything. I think um, you hit the nail on the head with <laughs> um, especially trying to figure out, you know, what are your current animals able to do in terms of both their own COVID mechanisms that they have on board? What skills do they have? Not necessarily trained, but just what do they do when they're stressed? <laughs> Thinking about, you know, if your cat decides that he's going to attack whatever is scary, mm -hmm. most cats, right, they tend to try to leave. That's usually their MO, but some cats are not like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe Jude is kind of not like that. <laughs> um, and so really being able to think, okay, in this scenario, what would my animal probably do? And then what animal do I need that would complement or at least not exacerbate <laughs> that reaction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you, yeah, um, if you really don't know what your animal's reaction is going to be, fostering is not the worst way to, to kind of test the waters as long as you are upfront with your adoption or the, the shelter or the rescue that you're working with. Um, and you maybe bring a trainer on board to field that safety concern if there is one first. But mm -hmm. fostering is a great way to get to know different types of, you know, personalities and breeds and ages. And I know for me, even though I'm a, a, a trainer and probably could have predicted this, it was really valuable for me to have two very different puppies in the home to see, okay, here are all of the holes and the management that I thought I had, you know, sealed shut, but they're telling me that that's not going to cut it. So it's been really helpful just having this kind of almost trial runs. And I've been really lucky to have two of those just back to back, but having a way to yeah. test it out safely. And having the ability to adapt kind of on the fly. I'm just picturing you being like, this chicken wire fence is not holding my animals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, you know, things are gonna, you won't be able to anticipate everything. Mm -hmm. So having those contingency plans, backup plans is, I definitely agree, is super important. So do you have anything else that you have going on in your brain regarding cat dog stuff or just anything else you think would be helpful for people to know? I think the only thing that's kind of rattling around, I'm not sure why this comes to mind specifically, is that I, I found with all of my animals that when they're feeling stressed, the first thing I do is just try to comfort them. And that's the best way to build trust, I find. Because I've been seeing Maybe it's on my brain because I've been seeing a couple of social media posts about how um, you're reinforcing fear if you comfort a scared animal. And I just feel so strongly that if we're being stressed, it's so valuable just to provide that comfort. I know for Jude, it was a really helpful thing to get him over some of those fears when we were first seeing them prop up as just, you know, physical comfort is what he wanted. So finding whatever helps your animal feel safe, whether that's physical touch or training or playtime or decompression walks or wand toys and really giving, making them that that need is met so that that trust is there so that you can, you know, keep working on all these potentially stressful transitions. It's a really, really good point. I didn't even think to ask this, but in terms of comforting animals who are scared or chronically anxious, is Jude on any kind of behavioral medication or to, you know, it seems like he's got stuff even before there's puppies. <laughs> um, so have you thought about that? Kind of what's the story with having that on board? Yeah, no, we're on a wait list. So we're waiting to see a vet behaviorist. But as I think a lot of us know, it takes a while to get in. It's been on our mind mm -hmm. for for a while. Um, and we the only reason we didn't pull the trigger earlier on seeking out a vet behaviorist is because he had some other um, medical concerns. We wanted to make sure we were ruling out all of those things first before we launch into maybe it's behavior. Um, but I feel like we have ruled out that a lot of it is behavior. So now we're going to seek a veterinary behaviorist to help us keep him 
feeling okay because he's been doing much better, but I want to see where his ceiling is. So we're going to keep working on it. I think that's great. I feel like if there is a large amount of stress, more than is easily mapped onto a spike when they see the other animal, <laughs> um, it's potentially going to be helpful for any one of your pets to consider <laughs> that their stress level is just too high um, to be able to handle whatever behavior modification plan you're trying to implement by introducing these other factors. It's so hard as an anxious human myself, <laughs> to learn to be okay with new stuff if you're not okay with the old stuff. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, so kind of making sure that, you know, thinking about the whole scenario and, you know, really taking the time to seek out a vet behaviorist. It takes a long time. There are also vets who know about behavior um, or are more comfortable with behavior. And I know a lot of vet behaviorists are doing um, vet to vet consults mm -hmm. now as well. Um, so that could be an option for people who are finding that you know, the training isn't going as well as it probably could without some kind of general stress reduction protocol, whether it's medical or, <laughs> or, you know, a change of enrichment, change in management, all of those things are huge before you even try to like install those skills and have try to introduce the animals. I think people skip to that really quickly. Mm -hmm. And you got to lay the foundation appropriately first. Yeah. And I totally agree that a vet behaviorist should not be the last resort. It shouldn't be, well, behavior modification didn't work. So now let's try this because it can be really helpful to get that that behaviorist on board sooner so that learning is you know more accessible. Because like you were saying, if an animal is chronically stressed, they're not really in a place where learning is uh, going to happen very easily. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. I better living through chemistry occasionally uh, is <laughs> the way to go. So I really, really appreciate you coming on and talking to me. I look forward to hearing some updates about Brutus and how far you can take this integration process for as long as he's with you guys. And especially if and when you decide to add your own puppy to the mix, I would it would be great for us to do like a follow-up, um, see how things are going with that. So if any... If anyone listening wants to get in touch with you, ask you some questions, or follow you and your adorable animals, um, how would they get in contact? So with I'm you? probably most active on Instagram of all of the social medias. So if for mostly cat training content and occasionally aquarium and garden content, you're going to follow um, Clicker Kittens. It's all one word, no, no spacings or anything. Um, and if you're interested in more dog training stuff, you can follow my business page, which is Clickstart Dog Academy. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I will try to link some of the things that you mentioned in the show notes, like that paper that I really want to read. I'll, I'll find <laughs> um, that for you. And yeah, no problem. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks so much for listening. If this episode helped you feel less alone in your struggles with your cats and dogs and made you think about how your life with them might improve, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss my next episode. And if you want a chance to see the animals we were talking about today, check out the bonus podcast content section of the Cat and Dog Coexistence Club's community site. There you'll find short clips of my guests' pets at various points in their integration process, working through some of the techniques they talked about on the show, or just being cute. 
You might find some mini explanations or commentary from me in there as well. You can get access to that bonus content area for this and all episodes by going to praiseworthypets.com slash bonus. That's all for this episode, you wonderful cat and dog people. See you next week for more It's Training Cats and Dogs.